0: Hello, good day, greetings, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining True Hope Cast, the official podcast of True Hope Canada. True Hope Cast takes a deep dive into mental health's many psychological and physiological aspects. This is the show for you if you're looking for motivation, inspiration, knowledge and solutions. That is really what we're all about here at True Hope Canada. True Hope Canada is a mind and body based supplement company dedicated first and foremost to promoting brain and body health through non-invasive nutritional means. For more information about us you can visit truehopecanada.com Today on the show I welcome Lincoln Stoller. Lincoln is a quantum physicist, neuropsychologist, hypnotherapist, clinical counsellor, psychonaut, mountaineer, author and educator. He combines science, spirit and economics by applying an understanding of hard science to imagination, psyche and the behaviour of groups. Today on the show we are going to be discussing ego, culture and the subconscious. Enjoy the show. All right, welcome to the show, Lincoln. Thank you so much for being with us today. How are you? What is going well?
1: Um, Thank you. Um, What is going well? Well, I always have several projects on my front burner and uh, most of them are very long-term projects, so they sort of go up and down. The ones that are going well, hmm. Well, I'm doing some more marketing, that marketing is a funny thing. It's so elusive. Um, And um, I've been uh, thinking about what your topics are and how I would approach it, but you're going to have to help me target in on the listener, because um, I tell you, my background is both scientific and experiential, which is to say I like to get my hands dirty in whatever it is I'm involved with, and I like to... Uh, more than study it. I like to research it and uh, sort of go to the go beyond the bleeding edge. Um, so uh-huh. with uh, you know brain science, psychology therapy and um, I don't know what you want to call it. now we're getting into delicate terrain like spirituality. So uh, yeah, things are uh, interesting.
0: All right, that's great. Well, as an introduction, why don't you just let the audience know, let me know a little bit more about who you are and what it is that you do, please.
1: Well, you'd think that would be an easy question, but it's, of course not. Um, let me start with the present and word backwards. I'm a therapist now, a clinical counsellor. Um, I work mostly with mm, sort of thoughtful, older... Uh, people who are either in control or trying to regain control. Um, As opposed to people who are, you know, seriously um, disabled, as in schizophrenia or something like that. Um, Though I've worked well with those people too, I'm also very interested in medical issues, uh, physical, somatic. So, stepping back in time, I am a hypnotherapist and that's sort of a wild frontier and stepping back again I spent a decade doing brain training neurofeedback which is um, its own story not very well uh, integrated with medicine or psychology or neurology, but it touches on all of those. And I'm very interested and involved in that whole field. And stepping back again, I was uh, a kind of a world traveler. And I experienced many altered state experiences, both culturally and uh, ceremonially. So I was pretty involved with the ayahuasca phenomena, which is central in southern America, in many places, facilitated by many people. And uh, it was actually studying the brainwaves of people in trance and under the influence of psychedelics that got me into the brainwave training. And stepping back again, I spent 20 years as a software developer running a company that designed custom accounting databases. Designed, installed, produced, maintained, supported, trained. And stepping back again, I have a PhD in physics, quantum systems. And stepping back again, I was an astronomer with a wonderful guy. Um, who got me a job at NASA f- as an undergraduate and um, one of my several, you know, great mentors. And uh, stepping back one last time, I spent 10 years I, about mountaineering, which had a very important formative influence both on my character and my ability to understand people because it's both an extreme state that it puts you in and you meet some pretty extreme people. So that, uh, you know, the wrap up is I have a, uh, a PhD in quantum physics and a uh, certification as a hypnotherapist and another certification as a clinical counselor. And um, I'm doing, I'm writing a lot of books. And the books I'm working on now are trying to integrate brain training altered state experience, which is sort of coming in as psychedelics, it's popular these days, but certainly not the only altered state approach to insight. And um, what you might call coaching, uh, I don't, I haven't found a good word for it, but enabling people to be um, aware of and in possession of their faculties. So uh, that brings us back to the present.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much for that. I love the, the fact that you've gone, uh, you've gone backwards there. I think that's a great practice. Um, tell me the neuro, like done a bunch of things with the like neurofeedback work, the brain training work. Are you able to complement all those different practices with the current like counseling that you do now? Um, as a practitioner,
1: I try, I can somewhat, I'm limited in some ways. Um, The most obvious limitation is technical because the most effective brain training is done with a amplifying device on your scalp and the technology has been bouncing around. It's almost affordable and practical, but not quite. I'm still uh, stepping out from the legacy hardware, which used what are called wet contacts, which uh, sort of glue to your head with this conductive peanut butter paste, which requires somebody to apply them at certain sites on your scalp, which means you have to see the person in person. And uh, there's a certain delay in, you know, tuning the equipment. It's almost like I feel like I'm in a computer age with radio tubes when it comes to uh, doing EEG feedback with wet contact. And so now there's developing a dry-contact technology, and there have been, you know, the Muse is popular, but not very good, I hear, and some others. And, of course, if you want quality, you have to spend money, and I'm trying to move into that. The problem is that people don't want to pay for it because, well, first of all, the equipment is expensive, and it takes time on my part to record, analyze, and train, but mostly people don't understand what it does for them and so they don't appreciate the value and it's very this is sort of my big thing and we'll probably talk about this today is that we're trained to look for what I might call reductive results definitive objective measurable results when we assess anything and certainly that applies when we assess our uh, assess our investment in time and mental health and progress. Um, and if you everywhere you look, you see measures that are discernible and measurable, like money and profits and progress and things like this. But brain training doesn't give you that, it's a very subtle, very deep um, process of synchronizing yourself. And the typical result of people who do brain training is that they don't notice anything. And if they do, or when they do, they ascribe it to the world. They say, oh, it's been a better day. Or people have talked to me more nicely today. Or uh, I'm in a better mood. They don't really, you can't really see it happening. Because it underlies your thoughts and awareness. So when you ask somebody to invest in it, You know, they kind of want to know what they're getting out of it. And you have to kind of dance around. Um, But to get to your question, I do try to integrate it. Um, And I'm trying to integrate it at a less technical level, which of course is cheaper and more available, to get people to focus on the process of awareness. I'm gonna leave it there because cool. I can go on.
0: Yeah. You know? No, that's that's very, very interesting. And I just wonder like where are we in regards to um the current technology with amplifying technology and um being able to look at the what the brain is doing in regards to frequency or wave or however you analyze it. But like where are we at in regards to that technology for like normal everyday individuals? I mean, you mentioned that you know some people don't want to invest the money because they probably don't understand exactly what the the technology is doing and what the results mean. Um, but like, what can we, what can we actually learn from this current technology and how do you go about explaining that to people? Because you made a great point in regards to like, we love this like reductionist idea of looking at test results and this and that and this and that. We want simplicity, but sometimes it's just, it's just not the case. And you need to be working with a very trained technician to be able to, you know, analyze the brain waves and brain frequency. So kind of like, where are we in regards to the technology that's primarily available? And um, yeah, like what can we actually learn from if we, were, if we were to take the time and spend the money and spend the energy to, to, to look at where we're at? Like, what can we actually learn from the results?
1: It depends on what you look at. It's as complicated as the human body, which is as complicated as the human mind, though obviously different. So, if you look at certain diseases, there's opportunities. Um, So, basically your brain is a regulatory organ. It's more involved with regulating things. And it's very involved with regulating itself, so that it can perceive, cognize, and respond correctly. But it's also involved with the body, doing all those things for the body. So, if you've got certain issues that are more sensitive to your bodies, such as anxiety and, you know, anxiety tends to manifest in skin issues. So, you know, not always, but skin issues, bowel issues, um, muscle issues, and other things may manifest in different organs, depending on, you know, how far afield you have to go, whether you're going to Chinese medicine or Western medicine so with people who have certain issues brain training can do other things what's still problematic is using it diagnostically and medicinally Um, there have been a few physical disabilities where brain training is immediately helpful such as epilepsy so that makes sense because epilepsy is like a storm in your brain and if you could solve that Uh, You could have great progress, and in fact you can, but it's also a complicated issue, and your brain is not a simple thing. So the limits of progress are circumscribed. Um, If you have anxiety, anxiety is largely a cognitive thing. Certainly they're outside forces, but it's how you respond. And if you're chronically anxious, that's a different problem from if you have, you know, money problems which are physical and external. So, you know, here we get to the point of how does a person understand that they have different aspects to their condition, some of which they can work on through different means? So, uh, you know, the things that are becoming popular, trying to get to your answer, are, um, unfortunately, or unfortunately, more measurable things. So, calmness, anxiety is fitting in with meditation, mindfulness, and yoga. These are sort of popular trends in Western society. And you sort of do need popular trends because that's how people start thinking about things. Using brain training in the uh, 20 years ago, it was harder to develop an understanding with my clients because I'd have to sort of get them in the mindful yoga meditative frame of mind, if they weren't. And not everybody gets into that frame of mind. So you'll see right now devices that are offered uh, on one of these platforms. Mindfulness, helping you sleep, um, in conjunction with your yoga practice, or your meditative practice, and what they're doing is basically the same thing as what anxiety training for neurofeedback would do. Uh, that, that's not as simple as it sounds, because there's, there's really, even this is a simplification, two levels to anxiety. One is uh, vigilance, which is rapid and elevated response, and the other is uh, breadth of awareness, which is uh, memory and calmness and relaxation. And we have to have both right you want to be able to respond to the fire alarm that's not a bad thing you just don't want to be in a hair trigger all the time and you want to access older memories older feelings and older thoughts so they're really they're sort of two two directions one is high frequency the anxiety and the vigilance and the other is low frequency the memories and the thoughts and the relaxation so if you use brain training in that simple model it fits in well with meditation mindfulness relaxation sleep um maybe altered state work that's still very new we're not sure how that's going to play out and then this the price is still not uh low enough for what people expect so the price is I mean, it's coming down, you know, as we speak. Uh, you can get a Muse headset for between $1 and $300, depending on what model and whether it's used. And then the better headsets are starting to be rented for 30 bucks a month, but purchased for 400 These are dry sensors now, so that you can put them on yourself. And uh, in the U.S., they're under another cloud that they can't be sold as medical devices without being subject to strict control and liability Mm -hmm. so that they're not sold as medical devices. They're sold as relaxation. I mean, you're sort of in this nutraceutical, uh, non-medical area, and you know there is that line between claiming to do something medical and not. Yeah. So they're not claiming to do anything medical, which is sort of safe but it also means that there's no research into the medical direction with these devices because that broaches the boundary of so forth and
0: interesting yeah
1: and that that prevents our progress somewhat
0: when it comes to energy waves brain waves brain frequency um because i feel like most people don't don't do a good job with understanding things that they can't like physically see or understand like i can look at a blood test and analyze it and have a look at it and get my basically just get my doctor's opinion and if it's outside of a normal range then i might bring some attention to it but um we don't do very well with with understanding things that are like happening internally and obviously we're all bound to you know the same the same laws when it comes to everything admitting an energy a frequency it's kind of like all there but yeah we don't do very well understanding those types of like mysterious types of things especially when so much of the brain and the body is just yet to be understood and probably ever probably won't be but like what's commonly misunderstood about um i'm going to use the word energy and frequency Mm -hmm. that you know is happening within every cell of our bodies down to the smallest organelles or whatever you want to, you know, whatever you want to describe, but like, what do we commonly misunderstand about something that we all have? We all share. It's absolutely there, but the, the understanding is so unconventional that we don't really like talk about it or understand.
1: I think the question is a culturally relative question and I have to approach it or have approached it. I have no other way to approach it culturally which is to say I use what I know about brain waves and you know the sort of scientific experiments done with them for whatever it can reveal to me and I take um, basically I don't know I have found traditional Chinese medicine useful though I say that as I'm not a traditional Chinese medicine practitioner so I can I can say that with ignorance, you know, um, the idea of uh, energy in your body and energy systems. Let me be more specific. So I'm, I'm trying to use the tools I have to approach that question. And the way I'm doing it is I'm saying, I'm using the tool of hypnotherapy, uh, which, you know, opens up that whole Pandora's box. And I'll have to define what I mean. What I mean by hypnotherapy is a focused awareness on something. And it, you know, what people think is it means you're spaced out and you're sonambulistic or you're in asleep or something. But those are just symptoms that an observer sees of somebody who's deeply focused. Um, You can be so focused that you're not aware of what's going on around you. But that's not the point. The point is what you're focused on, not what you're not focused on. Um, so yeah, you're not focused on you know what's happening around you and you may do silly things because you're asked to. But what's important is what are your what where where have you gone? So what I'm trying to do in that regard is getting people to go to their organs or their systems or their energy systems. And I'm trying to get them to focus on whatever little somatic clues we have as to what these systems are doing. And I'm talking about, Well, it's hard to say what I'm talking about. I'm not exactly talking about a physical organ. I'm talking about your awareness of it. So, I'm not exactly talking about the liver. And, you know, what awareness do we have of our liver? Well, in Western medicine, not much. Awareness, that is to say, subjective awareness. But in Eastern medicine, a lot. Because it's not entirely the organ, it's the energy. And again, it's, what I say, it's cultural. You have to sort of learn to think in the way that the liver is a detoxifying organ and your life has toxic energetic influences and now you can start to think in terms of energetic toxicity you're not really thinking in terms of your liver now your energetic concept and so this i think i can approach with hypnosis and say okay let's bring up your awareness of toxicity and now let's try to put it into your liver or see if we can do something liver-like about it. But I don't really care. I'm really trying to get a result. Whatever your result is. Because I think the uh, Eastern approach may be more suitable to the mentalization. Let me give you a, you know, this easily gets uh, lost in, in the unknown terminology. So let me be more specific with something I'm personally dealing with. So I had COVID like many people did. And I had COVID twice. And the second time was last uh, November, almost a year ago. Well, 11 months ago. And it put me in the hospital with a uh, collapsed lung. And, you know, the as we all should know, the doctors were, they just didn't know what to do and they weren't free to speculate. And they were constrained by, in this country, Canada, um, the government's protocols. So they weren't very helpful. They were vigilant, uh, you know, putting me on various measuring machines and taking x-rays and so forth, but they weren't very helpful. Um, And it was uh, not very reassuring to be under their care. You know, they said, you might die. Well, gee, thanks. Um, uh, So what I'm left with in the sort of long COVID experience is uh, what I would call impaired lung function and i say that because i'm not really sure where the impairment is it seems to be upper respiratory but they you know i must say canada is really great at um putting you into the system and you grind along very slowly through all the uh all the tools the system has to offer so i have a pulmonologist who uh is watching over me and uh not to be too negative, but I would say doing absolutely nothing uh, for whatever reason. I'm supposed to talk to him, I think today, in fact, and, and uh, I'm, I'm questioning whether I should ask him, is it true that you know nothing about my condition? But then that would be too negative and whether it's true or not, it's not going to be helpful. So I'm going to ask him or tell him about this experience, which is that uh, I've felt that my lungs can't fully respire. As if they were obstructed, but I don't have asthma and my lung capacity is 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 high, above normal, but they don't seem to be functioning uh, well. And yesterday, for one of the first times, I started running again, which I had been doing before COVID. And the result of that running was that my lungs really reacted with uh, spasms and uh, mucus and so forth and so on. And I thought, great, I've done something that gets a result. Now my body is pushing a boundary. And that is much more hopeful than the body not doing anything at all and just remaining incapacitated. So now I think I understand and what I'm trying to focus on is the energies. Uh, And it's very easy to be, it's at some level very easy to do that. So if you're coughing, you can say, oh, damn, I feel awful. I'm getting nervous. Uh, I don't know what's happening to me. Am I going downhill? And uh, you get more vigilant and more anxious. And on the opposite, which I'm doing, I think successfully, is I'm saying, oh, great. I'm coughing. I'm spasming. You know, my muscles are relearning how to be more effective and how to deal with other stresses and be uh, more efficient in pulmonary function. So I see it as a positive thing and I'm every time I cough or uh, sneeze or have a spasm, I think, oh, great, calm down, uh, try to process, try to get back in the flow. And I'm already within 24 hours feeling more functional. So I can work with a person, if I was my client, well, I am in some extent, but, you know, not in the real sense where I have uh, resistance. So my work as a therapist with a client is usually to overcome resistance. Some, some worry, anxiety, hesitancy, barrier is something that I can help them overcome. I, of course, I'm doing it for myself. Uh, you know, I don't know if it's easier or harder. But with another person, you have to get in their head and see what it is that's bothering them, develop some rapport, some trust. And then we get back to the cultural thing, like can you talk to them in terms they understand? And if they're looking at a direct improvement, well, what are they? We're looking at sort of blood tests or pulmonary function. And and you're working on, en- and you're doing energy work. You have to sort of convert them to think in your terms. Or try, anyway. Mm-hmm. So, uh Wait, uh, so that was my example of doing energy work on myself. And I hope you could understand how I might try to do that on someone else, whether it was COVID, lung function, liver function, or whatever. Uh, you can at least imagine that I would take a person into a realm where they might be sensitive to things they were not aware of. And get them to be patient enough not to look for dramatic results because if you're in a lost world, which is to say, into your body, and you're lost in that world, you can't expect dramatic results at first. In fact, you ought to expect and ought to cherish being lost in a new place, a new territory. Um, how do you, how, what do you think about that?
0: I think that's very interesting. Uh, a big thing that come up for me is like, how do you go about explaining to somebody you're working with when you're doing maybe like hypnotherapy work and you're allowing them and well, um, putting them in a position to become like hyper-focused on a particular organ that's causing them issues let's just say the lung, for example, because, you know, in your case, you were saying like, you know, you didn't have asthma, you didn't have any like clear, let's say conventional pathology that, that was like causing your causing your symptoms but like energetically there's like clearly something like going on there like how would you explain um to somebody who is working on becoming more focused on that particular organ and how their body is responding to that focus and you know in, in creating um not like a better energy but like I think of it as like if I if I have like, like lower back pain, for example, and I've got the ability and the time to sit down and maybe meditate and start scanning my body and thinking about that pain and bringing my awareness and my consciousness to that particular area, I feel that I am engaging in my body's healing response and putting that energy in that particular type of area. That's how like I would overcome like an in, some sort of like injury would how would you go about explaining that like energy piece to people because again like with like energy medicine or energy healing like a lot of people if they don't understand it a little bit understand the science behind it then their eyes are going to roll immediately and they're not going to put their awareness on what you're saying and because they just don't have that they just don't have any understanding of it because they're conventional ideas of symptoms diagnosis drug surgery whatever like that's kind of like the clear path that we've been put on and like thinking about things with okay like okay stop yeah. stop okay stop, sorry stop.
1: <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, i got it uh,
0: okay.
1: uh you're caught in a vortex there the vortex <laughs> of the unknown there are three answers one is that you work with whatever the person can feel so you ex- you amplify it so you know uh one of the typical hypnosis things is like if you have pain then imagine that you can make the pain worse by focusing on it. And if you can make it worse, then you can make it better. So now imagine that you make it less. So you're playing with it. It's almost like loosening a nut and a bolt by rocking it back and forth. So become aware, become less aware. Become more aware, become less aware. Um, In that way, explore your own limits of awareness. That's one. Uh, Two is I give them some mystical mumbo-jumbo and confuse them. (laughs) <laughs> to the point where they start thinking creatively. That's really the point. So, uh, you know, I talk physics or neurology, or I talk uh, traditional Chinese medicine or whatever they don't know about, but think is important. Mm-hmm. And then I um, either, val- either authentically or imaginatively take them to think about it in new ways, like uh, what if they could combine, you know, this and that. And i try to get them in a confused state where they drop their preconceptions nice so so the so answer one was i explore what they think and feel to accelerate amplify it answer two is i get them to a state where they drop their preconceptions and start to uh not only feel novelty but think and emote in novel ways so that they can start building connections, or I should say, so that connections start being built. It's not clear whose intention is really operating here. Um, And the third way, which is most interesting, I think, is I take them into hypnosis, and I do guided visualizations, and they say something to the effect, you know, imagine that a person is appearing who represents your pain, or whatever, trouble, Anxiety. And, you know, let's explore, it could be a person or an environment. And so a person is in hypnosis now, which means they're very focused, almost in a dream state. And uh, sometimes if people resist that, they'll they'll think, oh, what am I doing here? I'm making this up. And, you know, you deal with that, people. They got to go through that. Not everybody does. Some people do. Other people, you know, drop into it very easily and they just start flowing along. And what happens in that state, sooner or later, is that things start showing up. People, places, objects, memories, associations. And you encourage it into form. Uh, You know, what color is it? What shape is it? What face does it have? What voice does it have? And what happens is, usually, they find themselves confronting something they didn't expect. And they don't know what to do. So it could be a person from their past, it could be a entity, it could be an animal, whatever. People, I say they build this, some people say these energies exist out there, I don't care. Um, and then what I'll do is I'll say, okay, let me be the intermediary. Let me talk to them. Let me tell you what to do. You know, let, you know now go into that purple haze or that brilliant light or... Uh, you know, we tell a story, and now you're going to die, or now you're going to live, or you you know, whatever. A- and I watch them, and I'm looking for them to have an epiphany and a connection. So uh, here's a simple example. I had a client dealing with weight loss uh, issues, so they had body image issues. And through this process of imagining and creating and evoking, they established contact with a beautiful image of themselves that could speak to them and tell them how good they were. I mean, this person that they created, evoked, would tell them how good and capable and um, self-accepting they were. Not me. And that was tremendously useful because now they had a connection with their own self-loving self which is, uh, you know, something I might have led them to, sort of. But they felt it was theirs. They took responsibility and they had the connection and they didn't need me anymore. And I felt that that person, that entity, that uh, creation or reality, it's no no less real than whoever they thought they were, would help them more than anything anyone could do.
0: How much does, like, somebody's own ego get in the way of some of the the progression to that type of place because that's a very like i mean it's a very progressive place to be when if you were kind of uh you know settling down and putting yourself in a position to be spoken to like that and be connected with something outside of them that's a really powerful place to be in how much does like our own ego get in the way of even coming to even thinking about being in a place like that
1: it differs with each individual you have to understand your ego is another regulatory organ, if you will, regulatory process. And its job is to help you to respond to the world. So depending on what your world is throwing at you and what you've learned in terms of how to respond, it can be more or less in your way. Um, you know, in extreme forms, it's very in your way. You're highly responsive or I should say reactive. And, um, You're quick to impose an understanding on things. I mean that's an ego thing, you you know, it's thoughtful, conscious, intentional. Um, And it can be obstructive. Uh, There are other people who are very loose and laid back and sometimes slow or expansive or receptive or empathetic. And uh, that can be an opportunity but it can also be a, uh, a risk. You wouldn't want to be that kind of person in a war zone. In a war zone, you would want to, you know, we say PTSD is being overreactive, but it's not overreactive if you're surrounded by landmines. It's entirely appropriate. Mm -hmm. It's just that when you're no longer surrounded by landmines, you have to then realize that and not continue in that mode. So I think the question is not uh, exactly as you phrased it, as to how much the ego is a problem, but the question is, how flexible is your ego? Can you adjust it properly? It's like saying, should a car be revved at high revolutions or low revolutions? Well, it depends on what you're trying to do. We have gears, but we also have uh, you know, the gas pedal. And, and if, if you get in your car and it's either idling or your foot's on the floor, uh, then that's great if you're doing drag racing. But uh, for the most part, it's dysfunctional. So that's where I would focus is not on the question of if or what your ego is doing for you, but whether you can control it, whether you can manage it. I and mean, now we're talking about brain function again.
0: Totally. Yeah. Fascinating stuff. I, What have you seen? How have you seen people's um, what have you seen people learn when they're connecting to more of their spiritual side, especially for those people who have never even contemplated spirituality as a part of their self
1: i use my father as the as the uh as the example he was a fairly highly driven a fairly unspiritual person and uh he would always say you know navel gazing was of no use that's he sort of put it in those pejorative terms and i would say uh, It's funny, I've had much more useful conversations with him now that he's been dead 10 years than I ever did when he was alive. Um, I say to him, everything you do is based on your sense of purpose and commitment. And if you have no purpose and you're committed to nothing, uh, life doesn't mean much and you'll have trouble putting energy into things. So I would say I would translate spirituality It's one of those terms that either you know it and it's useful, or you don't know it and it's not useful. I would translate it into practical terms by saying it's your sense of commitment and purpose. Uh, I think even the most materialistic person can get on board with that. Um, Even if you get down to, you know, being actuarial, it's like return on investment and uh, assets at risk. Uh, So, you know, in the most fundamental materialistic level, spirituality is a deeper understanding of your assets at risk. Uh, And you can't be too, although it sounds, you know, very measured and and reductive, you can't be too reductive when you're considering risk. Because risk is, by definition, pretty much all the things you're not thinking about. Um, You know, I've had many... People who died in avalanches, they're a great example of risk because you just, you know, they're like the monster under the bed. Avalanches happen on calm, low slopes. They don't happen on steep, dangerous slopes. And you have to be aware of, far every, they happen on bright, sunny days, on nice, gentle slopes. And if you don't know that, um, that's when you're in danger. And that's where, you know, all my friends have been killed on nice gentle slopes on nice sunny days. Um, So that's a kind of spirituality. It's a deeper understanding of what's happening beyond the things your ego looks at. I mean, does that help you?
0: Certainly, certainly. And something that you said really spoke to me in regards to purpose and commitment to something. And it makes me feel when I, when I think of like a lot of, a lot of of great, great, large group of our youth seem to have a huge lack of purpose and seem to have a huge lack of commitment to anything. And like, I tried to look back at myself as an 18, 19, 20 year old, and I can't really recall too much of what was going on in regards to my purpose and my own levels of commitment to something. But like when it comes to having responsibility or teaching children responsibility, I think we're doing a huge disservice to them within schools and maybe even at home as well. So I just wonder what, what your opinion is in regards to that, like being able to connect to your spiritual side of your purpose and your commitment, like maybe we're just stemming so far away from the capability of being in that type of spiritual place, because we are, we're we're breeding a group of people to not really have purpose and not really have commitment on like a, a strong level. I think anyway,
1: I, I entirely agree. I think it's a social problem and a personal problem. I'm totally anti-teacher and anti-school, positive on learning and mentorship. And I think the answer to the question is, unless you have dramatic, personal, committed experiences, you don't change. And if you could translate what we call education into, you know, personal, committed um, whatever personal whatever purposeful you'd have an education that was meaningful and as long as you don't you're just training people and i think it's fair to look you know the history of education is mostly in training you know 300 years ago people weren't trained much at all for anything they learned what was in their environment they learned how to make barrels and shoe horses and uh you know come with the last hundred years we've become an industrial society and we've needed people to have specialized skills and so we've trained them but that doesn't make a person aware in control of their ego Uh, it it almost limits them well it does limit them so that's why I'm anti teacher because I understand a teacher as somebody who trains you and I think uh, you can get your own training once you have purpose and commitment in especially in this age where there's very rapidly more resources available for learning. Uh, Let me just say, when I think about my youth, I am lucky to have one experience that was a landmark, watershed for me, that was indicative of coming to commitment. And once I came to commitment, kind of the world changes for me it changed for me and then it became much more revolutionary and reactionary and insistent and in control of myself and that experience was when I uh, decided to go rock climbing with a friend and we took a rope and we went out to the cliffs and we put the rope on and I headed up the cliff and I was about 150 feet up this is 15 stories and I looked down and I said holy shit I have no idea what I'm doing and I have done nothing to protect myself and all of a sudden it's not so easy and uh, I had a choice I could freak out and die or I could get control of myself and say uh, this is a situation we have a situation here um, what are you gonna do about it uh, And I was never afraid of heights after that but you know I it was a it was an epiphany it, it was not safe it was definitely not safe and that, that is the danger. Uh, If you're going to really enable people to learn, they have to be able to take some risk. You'd like it not to be fatal, and definitely that's true, especially not killing other people. But there is a real risk and, and, uh, you know, if you go back to traditional cultures, they did manage that with, uh, you know, coming of age ceremonies and other things. Sometimes they made it seem more dramatic than it was. But uh, I, I think this is the answer to your question.
0: Certainly. Yeah. I think, I think the big word that that came out to me with what you were saying there is, is about risk. And we have created, um, kind of a culture that's like, you know, you don't take risks. You don't take chances, be that with your physical self, your mental self or whatever that might be. And yeah, we have a very, very comfortable, most people have a very comfortable reality in regards to where you wouldn't have to take those types of risks to kind of figure out like your, your, your limits and put yourself in those kind of scary traumatic situations where you have to yeah, you have to make a choice in the moment to to kind of overcome the emotional sympathetic self I suppose and once you realize that you're able to do that in really traumatic circumstances you become super powerful then because you can do them in the minor stresses that come up in your life and you can really take control of those things and you can start to you know develop yourself develop your brain develop your nervous system to respond to you know which is quite frequently a very stressful world and yeah i love the i love the rites of passage that we would have traditionally have that just do not exist anymore you know we have like 30 30 35 year old man boys out there who have never taken that transitional period in their teens to whether that's whether that's to just have a job or to you know do something a, a little bit more like nature bound or something i'm not sure what it is there's a million ways You're to right. do I've, I've got a 1 year old and a 3 year old and i've trying to figure out in the next 10 years, how I, how I can help them transition from recognizing that they're no longer a child and they're turning into a young man, which comes with responsibilities. It comes with a role. And, you know, for me as a 15 year old, my, my dad told me I need to get, if if I wanted to start, if I wanted to continue playing golf and doing these fun things, I had to get a job to start financing that myself. And that was like, wow. Okay. I didn't realize that was ever going to have to happen, but obviously it had to. And, um, i had that responsibility and I, I had a role in the family i had this role at this job which taught me all of these you know i worked at mcdonald's when i was 15 years of age it wasn't it wasn't a uh, luxurious job that's for sure but you know i was doing ridiculous hours i was pushing my mind and my body in these like weird circumstances and i had this role in it was just it was just it was just interesting how much that like taught me um you know even like 25 years later on it's still teaching me that they the the power of having a responsibility and having a role having a direction having a purpose and having a commitment to something and then when things like you know a wife and and kids turn up you're slightly more prepared to deal with the madness that that, in, that, that endures and it's uh yeah it's quite powerful I just I, I just really struggle to see where in the school setting they are preparing kids for life, which is difficult and hard and sympathetically engaging. a lot of the time.
1: Okay, I, I, our time is short, I have a couple things to say. Um, I have some books on education, which uh, you should look at and anyone should look at who's interested in that started out as one book, and it's now three books, I think I'm finished. Um, If you go to my website, you can find it under books, my website is mindstrengthbalance.com mindstrengthbalance.com. Um, the books are called uh, The Learning Project and Becoming Super Genius, Volumes 1 and 2. That is to say, you're becoming super genius, not me. And um, I, we can go into those another time. It is totally a, a topic of its own. Uh, the other thing I want to say, and I'm I'm taking the lead here so you can just, dragging you along, is that for people who are listening to understand the topic we're talking about, energy, medicine, health, and mindfulness. The simplest thing I can say is that you have to understand your mind, that your responsibility to your mind is the same as your responsibility to your body. You have to pay attention to it, you have to uh, see what it's telling you, listen to it, and respond to your mind in the way that you respond to your body. You can't just go along egotistically thinking it's all about your intention and um, your reaction to things your mind is a way to regulate your awareness not simply control your awareness and so you have to tune it that could mean learning it could be awareness it could mean health somatizing exercising everything never see an opportunity never see a crisis without seeing an opportunity and um Yeah, as i i wanted to tell people that i have a blog they can sign up for and please do you get a free digital book uh we didn't even talk about dreams and sleep and all that stuff but there you go
0: thank you lincoln i think we can get you back on the show i'd love to talk more about your books I've, i've actually got some interesting questions in regards to the Illustrations in the front covers, there, especially in this rites of passage book. That's that I'd be interested to learn a little bit more about why, why those images are attached to those particular types of books. But if you're interested, we can get you back on the show. But you said your website is mindstrengthbalance.com. Um, so I can make sure that is in the show notes so people can connect with you and your blog. Your blog is on there and people can connect with yeah. that free resource.
1: Yeah, mindstrengthbalance.com. There's, uh, you know, a sign up sheet and it's a free monthly blog you can pay for weekly ones weekly installments if you're interested and i narrate them on podcasts and i'd love to have you as a subscriber please check it out
0: perfect well i'll make sure there's an insurance but lincoln thank you so much for spending some time with us today and going through some very fascinating topics i look forward to speaking with you again in the future but thank you so much for today
1: and thank you for hosting me simon
0: Of course. Well, that is it for this episode of True Hope Cast, the official podcast of True Hope Canada. If you've yet to subscribe, uh, please consider doing so. But that's it for this week. We'll see you soon.